Well, good morning. I don't know about you guys, but when the weather starts to get cold, yesterday I was working outside for a few hours and the cold breeze was starting to blow and I just, I started picturing maybe instead like laying on the beach and it's 80 degrees and it's sunny. Uh, it's going to be a long winter, I feel like, guys, but have you ever maybe gone on a vacation, knew you were heading off to the beach, and you had to pack your suitcase, but you didn't quite feel like there was enough room to pack everything that you needed in there. Or maybe you had gotten pretty much done packing, only to realize that you forgot something big and super important that you needed to fit in your suitcase. And when that happens, what is the only way to make it fit? We literally have to take everything out and repack the whole thing again, right? <laughs> and that ends up feeling like it's going to take two times as long as it took us to pack in the first place. And it almost ends up feeling at times for us like an impossible feat. And I think generosity can feel like that at times too, can it? Because we've all got bills to pay, we've all got broken stuff to fix, we've all got college to save for or college to pay off. Uh, we've got clothes to buy for kids who, like my nine-year-old, who four months ago, I made him try on every pair of pants in his drawer. They all fit. Four months, fast forward. Now none of them seem to fit. They're all like capris on him, and I don't think capris are in for nine-year-old boys, right? We already have so much stuff in our bag, and then we get into a series like this, and we realize, yeah, God, God is important, and he's big. And I feel like being generous to him is something that I'm supposed to do, but how do I fit that into a life that already feels so full and feels so tight? You know, that's what makes conversations about generosity so challenging, right? Because we may like the idea of being generous. Like we listen to the, the smooth vocal stylings of Dan Matarisi in the bumper video, and we think, boy, it would be really cool for us to be wide open to God. And then we sit down with our spouse to, to pack our bag, to plan the distribution of our money, and there's already so much in the bag. It seems like the bag is, is literally too full to fit one more thing in it. And who wants to go to the hassle of unpacking that thing? That sounds like a lot of work. That sounds really messy. We'd rather just kind of leave it the way that it is and kind of put an elbow on top of it and shove it in there and keep everything self-contained. But... This morning, as we've been encouraging you to throughout this whole series, we want to invite you to embrace the mess, <laughs> to continue in this process of unpacking and repacking our bags with God, to continue to grapple with Him. You know, grapple has kind of turned into a bit of a daybreak buzzword over the past few months related to this generosity initiative. And this past Sunday night, about 120 of us took part in Advanced Commitment Night. And as Pastor Rick said, it was just an absolutely beautiful landmark night of worship and commitment. And many of those attending did turn in their commitment cards. Uh, but the, at the end of the night, both for those who didn't turn in their cards, but even for those of us who did, I challenged them. I said, listen, you got to keep on grappling with God because we still have two more weeks of messages. We still have two more weeks of group content. And if you're anything like me, I know that God's not done with me yet. God's not done with my heart yet. And it's funny because several people kind of joked around about it with us afterwards saying, listen, you guys are doing a great job with this series. But if I'm honest, I'm kind of ready to be done grappling <laughs> because grappling is hard work. Unpacking and repacking the contents of the way that I spend my money, the way I view my money, is really challenging. 
And even some of us on staff uh, are kind of ready to be done hearing the word grapple. In fact, Susie Andrews, Pastor Sean's wife, was out with Pastor Sean on Monday, literally telling Pastor Sean, hey, I'm not going to be sad if when this series ends, I don't hear the word grapple for a long time. And two minutes later, they pull up to the stoplight, and no joke, this is what they see. (laughs) I mean, really? Pastor Sean sent this to us on Monday, and we, I mean, you just, how do you beat that? The irony in that, right? I mean, God's invitations for all of us to continue grappling with him are literally everywhere, including the license plate of the car in front of us. Why is he keeping that in front of us? I think it's because this is such an important heart issue for us as Jesus followers. God wants us to keep opening our hearts, to keep opening our hands, to keep opening our wills, to open our very lives to him. And so I point us back to our theme verse for this series, this awesome picture of what we believe happens when we choose to grapple, when we choose to open ourselves up to God. Romans 5.2 says, and that's not all. We throw open our doors to God and discover at the same moment that he has already thrown wide open his door to us. And we find ourselves standing where we always hoped we might stand, out in the wide open spaces of God's grace and glory, standing tall and shouting our praise. And so here on week five of six in this series, whether you've heard all the messages so far, whether or not you've engaged in a small group, whether you've been all in from the start or a bit of a slow starter, whether if you've been, if you're honest, you've been a little skeptical, maybe even a little resistant to God throughout this series. This morning, The God of the universe is inviting you to become wide open to him and his plans by rediscovering the joys of having a generous heart. And so today we're going to look at two passages of scripture that just paint this incredible picture of what that looks like. The first passage today comes from a story in Mark chapter 12 verses 41 to 44 where Jesus is in the temple and he's teaching his disciples and as was Jesus' typical style, He's teaching about some specific actions, but even beyond the actions, what he's conveying as the most important thing are not the actions themselves, but the motives behind the actions. And in this passage, Jesus does something that may seem a little bit strange to us. Verse 41 says, He sat down near the collection box, and he watched as crowds dropped in their money. (laughs) Now, just, time, just like the last time that I preached uh, a, a few weeks ago, uh, when we were looking at the story of Jesus sending his disciples off on this kind of missionary journey, and he told them, don't take any money with you, don't take a single, single dime with you, don't pack a bag, don't bring a change of clothes, don't bring anything. Or maybe the story that Pastor Rick preached a few weeks ago of Zacchaeus, who's this chief tax collector, this chief sinner, well known as a guy that people cannot stand, and he's up in this tree, and Jesus looks up and is like, hey, Zacchaeus, come on down here. I'm going to spend the day with you. And looking at everyone else's reaction when they looked at Jesus like, what is happening right now? I kind of wish I could also be in this story (laughs) and see the facial expressions of the characters who were involved. I mean, imagine if Jesus showed up here on a Sunday morning, And he's kind of standing by the offering box, and you're writing out your check, or you're putting your cash in, and he's kind of like, hey, how much you giving up there? (laughs) It'd be a little awkward, right? 
Imagine if Jesus was at your house when you're on your laptop, when you're on your iPad, you're entering your electronic gift to daybreak. Would you be tempted to kind of pull Jesus aside and say, hey, Jesus, I know you're not from around here, but we don't really watch what other people give. It's supposed to be a secret. It's a private thing. And so you skulking around the offering box, it's making this whole thing kind of awkward, Jesus. In fact, money, more specifically generosity, that's not really something that we talk about. That's not something that we point out in other people. That's, that's their business, not our business. But here's the thing. In Jesus' day, it was actually quite opposite. In fact, people expected others to watch their act of giving. People expected others to know and to be up on the status of their financial state. And because of that, there were some people who almost put on a show at the offering box. That was the negative of this cultural norm. But the positive is that money was not a taboo topic. And because people were very aware of how other people were doing financially, we see these really cool scenes like in Acts 2 where people are selling their stuff and giving the proceeds away to others who they knew were struggling financially. And so oddly enough to us, in a way that feels countercultural to us, but in Jesus' day was not countercultural at all, we find Jesus and his disciples, and they're observing as folks are giving their offerings. They're observing, they're watching people worship God through their act of giving. This tradition that started back in Deuteronomy 14, where people brought their offerings to acknowledge and to be reminder that, reminded that God was their provider, that, that God had given them everything they needed. But as I alluded to here in the first century, this practice had kind of become an occasion where the well-to-do would try to tout their wealth by making a noisy or conspicuous, a noticeable gift. The text says that Jesus noticed that many rich people put in large amounts. Now, on that day, the currency that people gave in the temple was coins. And so, while I don't exactly know what the offering boxes look like, the picture that I get of the sounds of the scene is the picture of someone at your bank holding one of those big, like, pretzel rod plastic containers, and it is totally jam-packed full of coins. And they step up to that coin counter machine. Do you guys have those in your bank? And they start to dump those things in there. And the noise of all those coins clinking together and swirling around the machine is so loud that it is nearly impossible, if you're in the bank at all, to not notice what's happening. And honestly, to be kind of curious, right? Like, you're in line waiting to do your transaction. And you're looking over there like, look, that dude's up to 87, 95. How much change did he have in there, right? That's the picture that I get of these well-to-do religious people who very loudly and very noticeably take part in the offering. But then as Jesus continues to watch, it says he catches sight of an extraordinary person that no one else had seen. It says, then a poor widow came and she dropped in just two small coins. Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given more than all of the others who are making contributions. And can you picture the look of confusion on the disciples' face? Like, Jesus, I, I know, like, you weren't a math major or anything, but have you been watching the same offering that we have? I mean, have you been listening to the same offering that we have? Haven't you seen, haven't you heard how much those other people gave? And Jesus says, listen, you've got the wrong measuring rod because it's not about the number. He says, for they, the others, they gave a tiny part 
of their surplus. But she, as poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. Let me read that last phrase again. She had given everything she had to live on. Think about that for a minute. Think about the ramifications of that. She gave up the chance to know that she had money to buy herself her next meal. She gave up the chance to experience any, albeit a small level, of financial security. Jesus applauds her gift because she didn't just give what was left after her budget was done. She didn't just give what was left after she had everything that she wanted. No, she gave everything. Jesus says, yeah, you saw those big gifts, right? They were nice. They were fine. I mean, they were lovely acts of charity, and God certainly can use those. But don't be fooled. Those gifts, they weren't generous. The widow's gift, however, even though it was only two coins, it was the most generous gift given today. Why? Because it emerged out of a love relationship with God. Her gift showed that she didn't just try to fit God into her life, but that God and her trust in God literally was her life. See, whether it's giving, whether it's reading our Bible, or any other act that we engage in in relation to God, that act only holds great meaning when it draws us into a deeper and more dependent love relationship with God. Jesus says it's not about the what you do. Focusing on the what tempts us to revert to legalism. He says, no, it's not about the what you do, it's about why you do it. In giving, it's not the what or how much we give. That, that's important, but that's secondary. He says, no, it's about the heart. It's about the motivation from which we give. That is primary. Based on her story, I believe Jesus' advice to us in this season would be don't get so caught up in the number that you're going to write on your commitment card because I'm not super concerned about the number. What I am concerned about is how hungry you are for God and, and how excited, how eager you are to express your love to him through that number. I think he'd say it's not the amount that honors God. No, what the poor widow showed us is that it's the amount of sacrifice that honors him because that is what truly reflects the heart of the giver. And I have to believe that if the amount of sacrifice is where it should be, then the numerical amount will be where it should be also. See, those well-to-dos in the story, they, they had simply fit God into their life, into their budgets. They gave out of their abundance. They had made sure that they had what they wanted first, what they valued, and then after all of that, they thought, what can I still give? What high amount can I give that will still make me look good to God and to others? And while those amounts were high, the level of sacrifice needed to pull off giving those amounts, Jesus says that's pretty much non-existent. But with the widow, while the amount was incredibly low, the level of sacrifice was infinite. However, she came to the place of, of showing up at the temple that morning with her two last coins. I have this picture of her approaching the offering box and praying under her breath and saying, God, 
My confidence in your goodness and in your provision for me is so high. And my love for you is so powerful and so all-consuming. And so even though these two coins are all I have left, I cannot possibly respond in any other way than to joyfully give them to you. It's an amazing story of sacrifice. Do you know what sacrifice is? I love this definition. Sacrifice is giving up things we love for people we love. Giving up things we love for people we love. You know, we like hearing stories of sacrifice, right? We'll go pay $12 at the movie theater to go watch a movie about sacrifice. We'll celebrate people who willingly sacrifice for the good of others. But when we are the ones who are called to sacrifice, oftentimes we struggle to carry that out. Maybe it's because we feel like it's a loss of control or because it feels like we're going to be neglecting ourselves and our needs in order to be able to sacrifice for others. But what if we could see sacrifice differently? What, what if sacrifice could be a, an exercise in joy, something that we could willingly embrace like the widow did? For a young man named Stephen Darts, sacrifice was something that he willingly embraced. As a young child, his parents were unable to raise him, and so his grandparents took him in. And as a high school and college student, Darts was constantly picked on. He lost a few friends. He even lost a few girlfriends because of his unwillingness to go out, to have fun, to take his girlfriends to nice restaurants. Why did he sacrifice those things? Well, he sacrificed those things so that he could either work to make money or so that he could stay home to save it. See, at age 24, while working two jobs and attending college full-time, Stephen presented his grandparents with a check for $15,000 that would pay off their mortgage. Why? His grandparents asked. He said, I promised God in the second grade that I would pay off your house and help you retire. And God has shown me that the best and most beautiful things in this world cannot be seen cannot be touched, cannot be possessed, but they're things that can be felt by the heart. He continued when he was interviewed by the Today Show, and he said, if I can do anything for them with every bone in my body, I will do it. I will sacrifice for them. Because while I know that going out with my friends is fun, fun is just a temporary feeling. I don't know how long my grandparents still have on this earth, he said, but I know that my love for them is not temporary, it's eternal. Why did the widow willingly sacrifice? Why did Stephen Darts willingly sacrifice? How could they see sacrifice as something joyful and not painful? Four letters, L-O-V-E. See, sacrifice and love, they have this really cool cause and effect relationship. The more we love someone, the more we sacrifice for them. And the more we sacrifice for them, the more we love them. And as this translates to our relationship with God, the more open we are to acts of loving sacrifice, the more open we become to loving God. The more we sacrifice for God, the more we love Him. The more we love God, the more joy we find in sacrificing for Him. Now, you might be thinking, I, that makes sense. I mean, I guess as I think about the relationship between love and sacrifice in my own life, maybe I've got kids. I've had moments where I've seen that play out in my own life. 
But today, as I sit here, as I look at my limited resources, as I look at what's in my life's traveling bag, I'm not quite sure how to come to the place of joy and sacrifice in love as it relates to generosity. How do I get there? Well, let's look at our next amazing story. This one from the Apostle Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth about a group of Jesus followers from Macedonia. Verse 1, he says to these believers at the church in Corinth, he says, Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They're being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. I want you to underline a few phrases from that second verse there. Underline the phrases, many troubles, very poor, abundant joy, and rich generosity. So if I'm reading this verse right, the equation in that verse seems to be many troubles plus very poor equals abundant joy plus rich generosity. Now, I'm not quite sure how that equation feels to you. For me, it doesn't quite seem to add up. Maybe it's common core. I don't get that stuff. I mean, shouldn't having many troubles and being very poor lead to exceeding sorrow? <laughs> lead to, to holding on tightly to everything that we have? Not for the Macedonians. Because while they may have been impoverished in circumstance and in finances, it's clear that they understood that they were rich in Christ. That in nothing and with nothing, they experienced Christ as everything. And what if we could experience Christ in that way? Is it possible that everything that we have is actually preventing us from experiencing Christ in that way? It's a challenging question for us to ponder. Paul continues in verse 3. He says, For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. See, Paul was going around to different churches and he was taking an offering for this group of believers in Jerusalem who the church of Macedonia, all these churches of Macedonia, they had no clue who these people were. They would give their money and they would have no clue specifically who it would help or specifically how it would be sent, bent. And you can almost surmise as you read this verse that Paul, knowing the circumstances of the people in these Macedonian churches, is almost trying to dissuade them from giving because basically they couldn't afford to give. <laughs> and yet they did choose to give. And it says they gave far beyond their means. What would lead them to sacrifice that much? How could they choose to be that generous? Again, it's love. I mean, you might hear this story and think, man, if I'm honest, I've always kind of viewed giving as a burden. But here are these people in a worse situation than me, and they're literally begging for just the privilege to be able to give. Or maybe you look at a season like this and you look at the guidebook and you look at the extra money that Daybreak is hoping to raise with a little bit of skepticism. Like, what's the church going to spend all this money on anyways? But then here's these believers who had no idea who their money was going towards, no idea exactly how it would be spent, and without the full details, they said, Paul, we want in. 
Don't withhold this opportunity from us. I want to give generously to God to bless others in Jesus' name. Don't take that away from me. Or maybe you've thought throughout this series, I just, I just can't afford to give. There's just literally no room left in my budget. And then we look at these believers who Paul said couldn't afford to give, and yet they gave abundantly anyways. The story of the widow, the story of the Macedonian churches are challenging stories that bring forth a principle that Jesus wants us to take a hold of. That giving isn't something that we have to do. Giving isn't something that we're supposed to do. Giving is something that we get to do. It's an opportunity God puts before us to make our hearts tender, to make our hearts full of joy, to be used to bless others and to change the world around us. As you hear those two stories today, how's God challenging your heart? I want you to watch the story of Katie Beth Clark and some of her grappling in this season as she began to engage with one of these stories on her wide open generosity journey. Check out her video with me. Tithing has always been a no-brainer for me. I was taught from a young age that God's provision and blessing follows the act of obedience of giving when you give a portion back to him. And God has always provided for our family, even in times of intense financial struggle. I think what God is challenging my heart in this season is to be more willing and open to being generous beyond our tithe. While we've been faithful with our tithe all these years, I feel like we've maybe made a checkbox out of it, that we've done our duty, and whatever's left over, we'll just try and make life work. And since we don't have an abundance, giving more has maybe never seemed like an option on the table for us. However, God was really speaking to me through his word. In 2 Corinthians 8, the Macedonian churches, oh, they are amazing, they gave out of their ability, but then it said even beyond their ability they gave, even in the midst of a severe trial. When I read those words, I just felt God impressing on my heart that I need to be more open and willing to be generous in all areas of my life, that he doesn't want our giving to become monotonous or rope or a checkbox, that we need to be willing to be ready for his whisper of encouragement, to be generous and any time that he might think it's a good idea, even when we don't think we're able to. I relate so much to what Katie Beth is processing, and maybe you do too, that, that even if you have been giving, you may have lost the heart behind it. Maybe you've viewed giving as, as a duty, as a religious checkbox, as a, I'm supposed to do this, so I guess I'll do this. But what's so clear in the story of the widow and the Macedonians is that giving isn't so much an external action as it is an internal reflection of our relationship with God. That the act of giving is just this huge invitation for us to reflect God's generosity and to deepen our trust, to deepen our love relationship with God. I mean, if we view our giving like we have to pay another bill, of course we're going to be resentful. It's going to feel like a burden. 
If we view this whole generosity initiative as the church just wants more money, well then of course we're going to view it with skepticism. But if we view giving as an expression of worship, as an expression of our love for God, if we view it as an opportunity to enter into a deeper trust relationship with Him, as a way to help Him accomplish His mission, that is totally different. That's when giving changes from I have to to I get to. How did the Macedonians get there? How did they come to this place of incorporating generosity into their poor, troubled lives? Paul gives us a glimpse in verse 5. He says that the Macedonians did even more than we had hoped for, underline this next phrase, for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord. Their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us just as God wanted them to. How did they give with joy? How did they overflow with rich generosity? It's all about what was first. Giving themselves to the Lord, choosing to honor and trust God first, and then reordering the rest of their lives around him. See, when God becomes first, when we truly put our love relationship with God first, then we will gladly make other things second. When God becomes first, we will gladly make other things second. Think about your relationship with God. I'm guessing you're here today because you've experienced some of God's goodness in your life. And you want more. Maybe you found tears emerge in sweet moments of worship. Maybe you've been strengthened. Maybe you found hope in learning more about God through the sermons. And so you try to fit God into your life. You say, I want, God, I, I want to add you to the rest of my life because it seems like having a relationship with you could be beneficial. And yet at the same time, our lives are full, right? And we find ourselves busy with all that life has to offer us. And so as much as we want to fit God in, we find ourselves unable to. To use the suitcase analogy earlier, maybe we, we try to push some of the other things off to the side and we try to squeeze God in on the other side, but, but we struggle to fit him in in a way that, that is deeply life-changing or transformative. Why? Why is this such a struggle to fit God into our lives? The reason why is because he's too big to fit into our lives. God is not an add-on. He is a build-around. He's uncontainable. And so the only way to make it work is to surrender everything to him, to give him as much space as he needs, and then to fit the rest of our lives around him instead of the other way around. See, anything we build our lives on that is not God, anything we put first in place of God, the Bible calls that an idol. And for many of us, even though we might hate to admit it, as we've gone through the course of this series, we've realized money is our idol. It gets our energy. It gets our effort. It gets our attention. Maybe because we like the freedom it offers, or we like the security or the power that it gives us. For whatever the reason, it, money, an inanimate object, we've given our hearts to it. And anything that has our hearts has its grips in us deeply. And that's why this generosity conversation is so hard. Because to give generously, to give sacrificially, it's going to take us breaking up with money. 
It's going to take us ending the relationship that we've had with it. It's going to take us moving, shifting the hope and the trust and the love that we have afforded to it. It will take a radical reordering of our lives. And any of us standing up here and telling you to do so, that's not going to motivate you to do it. The only way you'll be motivated to put God first, the only way you'll be motivated to break up with money, your friend with benefits, is to get a clearer picture of how much God loves you and how much God has sacrificed for you. Think about that young man, Stephen. Why was he so motivated to sacrifice for his grandparents? It was because he recognized how much his grandparents had sacrificed for him and how much love they had for him. God's love calls us to a radical reordering of our lives. And this morning I want to ask you, are you ready for it? And when I ask that question, what you probably hear is, are you ready for the amount of work that that's going to take? And that is a fair way to receive that question because it will take some work. But when I'm asking that question, I'm asking it more in this vein. Are you ready for the joy? Are you ready for the reward? Are you ready for the freedom that is on the other side of this reordering? And if the answer to them, that question is yes, then it's time for you to open your door wide to God, to embrace the love and the sacrifice that God, through Jesus Christ, has made for you. If you put God first in this area of generosity, I truly believe you're going to gladly put everything else second and that your life will be changed and that you will find freedom through generosity like you've never had before. Jesus held nothing back from you. He went the whole way to the cross to convince you how much God loves you. He gave everything so that you can have confidence in God's care for you. You know, there's this little verse in Hebrews 12, and it, it talks about how Jesus endured the cross and scorned its shame for the joy set before him. Have you ever thought about that verse before? Like, the joy set before him. The joy of being beaten and mocked and tortured and crucified. The joy of sacrifice. What's so joyful about it? Here's what I think Jesus would say. You were. The ability for you to have a relationship with God where your sins wouldn't count against you. When it came to your eternal destiny, Jesus put you first. God's love for you is greater than you can fathom. And this morning, I want to invite you to experience it. To get just a glimpse of it in this next song. And so the team is going to lead you, and then after the song is over, we're going to take communion to further reflect on and remember the greatest sacrifice that was ever made for us. Would you bow your head with me for a second? God, would you meet us here right now? God, would you break through the walls of doubt the walls of shame, the walls of disappointment, the walls of fear. God, would you break down the walls that we have put 
that have blocked us out from truly experiencing your great love for us. God, would you meet us in this moment? Would you show up in our hearts? Amen.